I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And a quick reminder that you can follow us at Pod. And by the way, if you've got any questions, thoughts, ideas you want to share, tweet right at us. Now let's get on with the show. The whistleblower should be revealed. Because the whistleblower gave false stories. I think that the whistleblower gave a lot of false information, and you have to see who the whistleblower is. I say tonight to the media, do your job and print his name. Where's the whistleblower? Day by day, as the evidence against President Trump in the Ukraine investigation gets ever more damning, The chorus of demands by Trump and his allies to out the whistleblower and force him to testify gets ever louder. But what has this meant for the whistleblower himself and his lawyers? And what should we expect from the long-awaited public hearings that start next week? We'll discuss with a special impeachment panel with two of our Yahoo colleagues, and we'll talk to Ohio Senator Sherrod Brown, author of a new book about his progressive predecessors who once occupied his desk inside the U.S. Capitol, and get his take on the impeachment saga and the Democratic presidential race that a lot of folks wanted him to enter. All that and more on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. Well, uh, quite a week in the uh, impeachment drama unfolding, and we have to discuss it all. Uh, two of our Yahoo colleagues who are tracking it, Jenna McLaughlin, who is out with a really amazing story about the threats facing the whistleblower and his lawyers, and John Ward, who's tracking the um, hearings before the Intelligence Committee and can give us some insight about what to expect next week. Uh, Jenna and John, welcome to Skullduggery. Thank you. Yeah, I just noticed your watch. Uh, Washington Nats watch. Ward uh, <laughs> yes. is a little obsessive these days about the Washington <laughs> yeah. Annual, uh, Nationals, which I see bitterly as the a world, Yankee fan. The world champion <laughs> Nationals, who I have to say raised a few eyebrows uh, in their appearance at the White House yeah. earlier this week, where some of them embraced our president, much to the scons- yeah. consternation of many of their fans. But look, uh, Jenna, let's start with you and the story that you're just out with about what these demands for outing the whistleblower have meant for the whistleblower and his lawyers. Tell us what you found. Absolutely. So as demands start coming from lawmakers, the president's son himself, average citizens are taking it upon themselves to call in and make their opinions known to the lawyers, Mark Zaid and Andrew Bakai, and sort of communicate their wishes to the whistleblower himself. And a lot of those are pretty crude, pretty horrific, very insulting, sometimes really explicit and graphic. some downright threatening. Yes, and some have reached the level of threats. And a lot of those have come through email, some of them with people's real names and some of them disguised through other services. But some of them say, you know, there should be a bullet in your head or Putin would have shot people like this already. Uh, So some of those the the legal team takes a little bit more seriously. And have actually even been investigated. Yes, at least one was investigated by the FBI. Uh, They're sort of keeping the option open if they want to report more of them. Uh, I had sort of a constant stream of them coming into my inbox from the legal team in real time, and they just keep coming. Yeah. I mean, this goes with the territory these days. I mean, it is a pretty vitriolic you know, atmosphere out there, but it gets, it gets a little scary when you're talking about a whistleblower like this particular person who is at the center of this huge political and partisan storm. And we know that there has been you know, a lot of political violence out there in the last couple of years. So I got to say, you know, the one when I listened to Trump talk about the whistleblower, just a political point, which we're going to get into later with, with John, it made me think that it really is Donald Trump 
who is leading the kind of defense strategy, the political strategy. He is the, you know, where's the whistleblower? Where's the whistleblower? We know, we've had, how many witnesses now have been up there who have confirmed what the whistleblower has put in his complaint? We have the description of the phone call, which confirmed pretty much everything the whistleblower said. So this is about distraction and deflection away from the underlying issues, from the substance of all of this. First of all, I think we have a couple of these uh, voicemails that have been left for the lawyer, which you got access to. Let's Just to give people a flavor of what Jenna is talking about, let's play one of those. Hey, you. Big, big lawyer, huh? Let me tell you something, you two-bit punk. And that's all you are in my eyes. So you want to, you know, the witch hunter's on, the kangaroo court. Forget the truth. Well, let me tell you something, mister. I'm one of those deplorables that voted for Mr. Trump. You know, the deplorables that go to Walmart and we smell. You know, like you intolerant bigots called us. We're the same ones that fight your wars. I did in Vietnam when I was 18 years old. I know you never served because you don't pack the gear because you're a two-bit punk lawyer. You're, you're corrupt. You're a liar. You're a sneak. It's written all over your puss. I saw the picture of you. You're part of this cabal. You want me to name names? I will. Nabla. Schumer. Feinstein. Blumenthal. Boxer. You want, to, you want me to continue? <laughs> No. Um, you notice a theme in the names that uh, this guy mentioned? I, I, uh, Clydeman says <laughs> to Isikoff, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, all Jews. Um, now, this was left on the voicemail of Mark Zay, yes. who is one of the whistleblower lawyers. Uh, John, you're tracking the hearings. Um, what's the likelihood that the whistleblower will be required to testify? Uh, you know, the Democrats would have to approve that. And, <clears throat> and I'd say there's That's zero chance. Happen. They're going to do yeah. that. So I think it's just sort of, you know, bluster at this point. Right. Yeah, okay. that's one of the most popular talking points and the voicemails as well. All these people say the president deserves the right to face his accuser. And Hunter Walker, our fellow colleague, reported that part of the White House strategy is to push those talking points out to conservative media where a lot of these people were picking that up. Right. Well, wait. by the way, actually, uh, since you bring that up. In your story, you all reached out, I think Hunter reached out to Donald Trump Jr. Yes. Because he had retweeted uh, a story in Breitbart that allegedly named the whistleblower, put a name out there purport that, they, that they said was the whistleblower. He retweeted that. So we reached out to you all reached out to yes. him for comment. What happened? What did, how did uh, uh, Don Jr. respond to that? So it, Don hasn't always responded to Hunter, our White House correspondent, but in this case he did and asked for anonymity. He essentially said, you know, the content of this email is on background without actually talking about that agreement with Hunter. And we so said, you didn't accept that. no, absolutely not, because we were asking him to comment on his decision to out the, the whistleblower So Don himself. Jr. wants to be anonymous. Yes, which is <laughs> ironic. How, uh, how ironic can it get? Now, by the way, Congresswoman Stefanik, Republican from upstate New York, did say she wants Adam Schiff to be the first Republican witness to testify at the hearings because Schiff and his staff did have contacts with the whistleblower before he filed his complaint, Correct. Yes. I mean, that's been reported in The New York Times. And she's not the only Republican to say this. Doug right. Jones or uh, not Doug Jones. Doug Collins. Doug Collins, who's the ranking member from the Republicans on judiciary. He wants uh, Schiff to come speak to judiciary, which would track with what Ken Starr did in 98. Right. Starr conducted the investigation, which Schiff is doing now. Right. And then once he was done with his investigation, he went to judiciary and he was their first witness. So that so, would track. So what are the chances that uh, Adam Schiff is going to approve a subpoena for Adam Schiff? I have spoken to Democrats <laughs> who said that that's not a crazy idea. Not a crazy idea, yeah. that he might be willing to testify. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, that'll be an interesting uh, session to watch. I mean, I think it would, it would make sense, and that's what they said. You yeah, know, well, if, if he conducts the investigation and they're done with it in intelligence and they pass it over right. 
to judiciary, it would make perfect sense. For so I got to say, I'm a little of two minds on the broader issue of whether the public deserves to know who the whistleblower is. On the one hand, he is protected by whistleblower protection laws, which are designed to encourage people to come forward. On the other hand, there's no question that this person played a key role in the events that are unfolding now. And if you're telling the full story of the impeachment of Donald Trump, and it looks pretty clear he is going to be impeached by the House, the whistleblower, uh, you know, is the guy who set it all off. And um, therefore, you know, there's a public, a legitimate public interest to know. As an example, I would ask all of you, Deep Throat was not essential to understanding Richard Nixon's crimes, but everybody in the world wanted to know who Deep Throat was. People wrote books about it. People wrote articles about it. People did studies of it for years to identify who Deep Throat was. Well, did anyone subpoena Bob Woodward? Uh, during Watergate no, to, 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 no, to try but, to uh, but, get but the identity of Deep Throat. They didn't. And that frankly, there was a legitimate public interest in learning who Deep Throat was. And I think by the right, same but token... We, we always deal with competing legitimate public interests. Right. Uh, from the perspective of, if, if this were a criminal case, think about the number of mob investigations, for example, that end up with tips from informants whose, identity we, yeah. whose identity we never know. Yeah. I brought uh, that now, up this is different because this is a political process and ultimately it is about the American people and the pressure that they put on, you know, their representatives. Um, but protecting a, uh, a key witness's identity, you know, is fair game in some situations. So it's a tough call. Yeah, I, I think it is a tough call. I think over time, look, I'm frankly surprised that, I, that I, the guy's name has not already, is not already well known. Clearly, people have already published it. It's pretty clear they know who this person is. This person apparently did work previously in the Obama White House National Security Council had some sort of relationship with Joe Biden, uh, then the vice president, and the inspector general himself said that there was indicia of political bias on the part of the whistleblower. At this point, it's a little absurd. I, I mean, absurd? Ever, yeah. I mean, anybody who wants to find out the person's name just goes and Googles the guy's name. And yeah. so I understand the argument about precedent. Like, that's concerning for right. future whistleblowers. But these are extenuating circumstances. That's the that's the counter argument. It's a big deal. And um, at this point, the idea of the establishment media sort of pretending like this guy's name is not out there, I think, looks a little ridiculous. Well, I think the other counter argument to that is that we have all these witnesses publicly testifying. Oh, I think it's a distraction. Totally. Even yeah. more access <clears throat> to the actual right. events that happened yeah. who are putting... Yeah. Absolutely. Concrete details in the, front of us. And, and the evidence, you know, from far more firsthand witnesses keeps adding up and is pretty compelling. And I think this week was sort of in some ways the most damning of all. In fact, I will say I was talking to a uh, very plugged in White House advisor, Republican operative for years, who not for the record was saying the disclosures over the last few days, the release of the depositions has been devastating. It was terrible for the president. This is this Republican operative's uh, words. And this guy was at a loss to understand what the president's defense was going to be. In light of the testimony from the, the release testimony of Gordon Sondland, of uh, Kurt Volker, making it clear there was that military aid and a White House visit was conditioned on President Zelensky of Ukraine making this crazy announcement about how he's going to investigate the Bidens and uh, Ukrainian interference in the election. Yeah, I'm about 130 pages into the Taylor transcript. It's interesting reading, and anybody who has an interest in it should go read the transcripts. It's also a preview of what we'll see at the public hearings. But I thought, you know, the one detail that I've been wondering for a while, and maybe it's been obvious. And I was just too slow to pick it up. But they did point out that when Trump and Zelensky have their call on July 25th, the Ukrainians don't know at that point that the military aid is being withheld as a condition. And that was something I had wondered because the, the Trump's mention of uh, what kind of missiles did he mention? Javelin. Javelin actually missiles. actually Zelensky who mentions them. Right. Zelensky mentions the missiles and Trump then says, I want you to do us this favor. I had wondered if he was 
making a you know a vague reference to the military assistance there and he may have been i guess but uh, you, you know like but we do i mean but the, in general on, they didn't know for another month i thought that was interesting well based on right but based on Sondland's amended testimony mm-hmm. he now this was september 1st but um, on the sidelines of this pence meeting in poland he is essentially delivering the quid pro quo to uh, Zelensky's uh, aid and the military and he says explicitly that you're not going to get the military aid unless you do these investigations mm. and the military aid is not released when is the military aid released September uh, 11th September 11th September so this 11th. is this is yeah. this is 11 days later right so and I mean, according to Sondland, anyway, they clearly know 11 days before the military aid is is released. Right. He's explicitly saying, right. unless you make these public statements that you're investigating, you're not going to get the, the military assistance. Right. And I think I mean, it's even prior to that. I mean, we reported, I, I spoke with a senior European diplomat who told me that this was floating around their diplomatic circles in late summer, that, that this was a concern. So here's what's striking to me about Sondland and Volker's testimony. Sondland, as he amended his testimony, said, yes, he did bring up the uh, military aid issue and the investigations to uh, the top aide to Zelensky. At the same time, he's asked about his, this is during his original testimony before he amended it, whether, uh, because he says it would be problematic to prompt the Ukrainians to investigate Vice President Biden or his son or to involve the Ukrainians directly. This is the committee council. Why do you think either of those activities are problematic? Answer, because I believe I testified that it would be improper to do that and illegal, right? Answer, I'm not a lawyer, but I assume so. So here's the guy who's actually delivering the message Mm -hmm. to the Ukrainians to do what the president wants, saying under oath he thought it would be improper and possibly even illegal. He assumes it would be illegal. At the same time, you have Volker, who's delivering the same message to the Ukrainians, asked about the phone call when he read the transcript of the Perfect phone call. I just did air quotes around perfect because that's the word that President Trump uses about the phone call. Uh, when you first read the call record from the J- July 25th call, what was your reaction? Answer, I was surprised. I had not heard anything about Biden, Hunter Biden or Joe Biden in this time. It creates a problem again where we're trying to develop to advance the bilateral relationship, strengthen our support for Ukraine, strengthening the position against Russia, now getting sucked into a domestic political debate in the U.S., that overshadows that. And he says, goes on to say it would be explosive in our domestic politics. So here are the president's two guys, the guys he has delivering his messages on Ukraine, both one saying it's improper and illegal for the, to do what the president is demanding. And the other saying he's surprised and it's potentially explosive and wrong to do what they are doing. Yeah, yeah, right. Exactly what they're doing. These guys are all over the place. And, you know, Sondland to me, everyone's talked about Taylor maybe being the most dramatic witness or Vindman, you know, who's lieutenant colonel and will show up in uniform, Purple Heart and all. But Sondland, to me, I think is the most interesting and potentially the most important witness. Political and, appointee, hotel magnate who funneled a million dollars to Trump's inauguration. Right, right, right. And he is, on the quid pro quo question, which in some ways is the most explosive piece of it all, he's in the middle of it. You know, he's kind of the linchpin here. He's the one who is uh, talking about it with Taylor. He's the one who delivers the message to uh, Ron Johnson, the senator, Republican senator from Wisconsin, telling him there's a quid pro quo. And now he's amended his testimony to say that he actually delivered that message to the Ukrainians himself. On the other hand, and that makes him obviously a very powerful witness for Democrats. On the other hand, he may have some credibility issues. I mean, how, <laughs> do, say you, the how, least. Do, you, how do you forget yeah. uh, that you delivered that message to, uh, to, to, to the Ukrainians, guys. right? You know, yes, there's a lot yeah. of ass covering oh, yeah. going on here, and he's got a fancy lawyer who we know. And, uh, you know, we don't it, know if he's going to appear publicly. Well, right wow. now we have next week the is the, it, tes- yeah. the, the, the testimony is going to come from Bill Taylor on right. Wednesday and, and Kent, uh, same and, day. And Okay. And George Kent, who is who? He was the guy at the State Department in charge of uh, Eastern European Ukrainian that's, affairs. That's Wednesday. And so he was, basically, uh, he was basically Taylor's boss. And Friday? 
uh, Yovanovitch, the, the, the former the ambassador. ambassador, the former ambassador. Yeah. yeah. So I, I mean, I, I guess your your assumption. My is assumption that is that Sondland, Sondland will testify, will testify because he was deposed. Right. Yeah. It's a reasonable he's assumption. A I mean, he's yeah. he's central to pretty much all of it. So right. I, th I don't see a scenario in which he doesn't uh, testify publicly unless the Democrats are worried about his testimony. But I don't think that will be the case. And let's not forget the testimony of, uh, was it McKinley, who was the... Um, who was the... Uh, that uh, was the, sp the special assistant to Pompeo. Right, right, right. Who says three times he went to Pompeo asking him to stand up for Ambassador Yovanovitch, who was being um, smeared by Giuliani and his cohorts. And... Uh, Pompeo, all three occasions, just listened. Can I say something about those uh, those comments you mentioned from the depositions? The Republicans are just going to basically say this is all a matter of interpretation. These guys are saying, like Sondland saying it's illegal. The other guy is saying we shouldn't be doing this. That's their interpretation. That's their um, interpretation. You have the president right. saying the phone call was perfect. Right. And his guys on the ground who are implementing his demands are saying it's improper. <laughs> it's illegal. It's wrong. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. so, right. yes, the Republicans try to make the right. argument right. that the phone call is, air quotes, perfect. But I think they're going to have a problem when the very people uh, no, I agree. who are testifying I agree. are going to say precisely the opposite. But well, I yeah, go ahead. Right. No, go ahead. Well, no, there's just one thing that Taylor said that I thought was interesting. <clears throat> he says basically that, yes, investigating corruption is needed in Ukraine. It's appropriate. But when the U.S. as a as a government pushes for that, it's for Ukraine to reform their institutions, to work at a systemic level. And to him, when the, the line was crossed, when Giuliani and Volcker and some of these other guys started pinpointing particular companies and instances as specific issues they wanted investigated, not to mention, obviously, that it, that it intersected with domestic politics and the 2020 election. But I think that's an interesting distinction to make well, when you talk about say, investigating okay, so corruption. Taylor can say, well, yes, we wanted them to do mm -hmm. investigations. Maybe he knew they wanted to do investigations of Burisma, but... I don't didn't know that it was about the Bidens. You have his text messages from May 26, 2019. So this is, you know, more almost two months before the phone call in which Taylor is saying, I am struggling with the decision whether to go. Can anyone hope to succeed with the Giuliani Biden issue swirling for the next 18 months? And Volcker says, let's see how it looks on Tuesday. I don't know if there's much to do about the Giuliani thing, but I do know the key thing is to do what we can right now since the future of the country is in play right now. So Volcker clearly knows that this is about Biden. He's part of a text message exchange in which they're specifically mentioning Biden as being what the demands are all about. So for him to say, oh, I was surprised that the president would bring this up in the phone call doesn't seem to square. Volcker said that? That's Volcker. Yeah. 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 Right. I mean, when mm -hmm. I called one of these Trump supporters who had left Zed a message and I sort of tried to drill into the point about you read the transcript, you read these interviews. Do you really not think that this is improper involving the Bidens? And ultimately, I finally got him to say, so what if it was? You know, so what if it was? I mean, that's where you get with a lot of these people. Right. Even if that was the case, we're still going to support the president. Right. Right. He, the, Trump can shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and they'll someone still support literally him. said that to me. They <laughs> said they mentioned that point. John, you have been talking to a lot of Republicans on the Hill about the kind of strategy that they are formulating to deal with this uh, Im impeachment fight. Mm -hmm. What have you learned? What are they going to do? What are they talking about? So they see the the playing field as. The assumption is that the House will, impe will impeach and the Senate will acquit. Trump will not be removed from office. And so the question, the million dollar question for them is how do we turn the political fallout from this into something that's advantageous for Republicans, for President Trump and for the Senate? And so there are some who are pushing for a much more organized response 
then I think it was Stephanie Grisham tweeted the other day, we don't need a war room. We, you know, the Trump is our war room. You know, his Twitter is our war room. There are pretty powerful, influential Republican operatives, including as well as some senators who are, who don't think that's sufficient. And they want to do something similar to what happened during the Kavanaugh nomination, which is where you had an operation inside the White House that was working closely with the Senate, that was working very closely with their surrogates on cable television and their allies in the political arena to coordinate on message and have a, a coherent, unified message that was quickly and easily updated as circumstances and events unfolded. And so as the trial goes on in the Senate or the hearings in the House, they need they feel like there's a need for a much more cohesive message and, and, a, and a teamwork driven model here akin to the Kavanaugh hearings. So I have my <clears throat> I have doubts about whether in this particular case where you have Trump himself, who is the target of this investigation, who is the focus of it all, if he could outsource it, if he can be disciplined, if he can keep his itchy Twitter finger under control. And actually, something happened uh, just this week that echoed a prediction uh, that one of your sources actually made in in one of your stories talking about what what a Senate trial would look like. One of the things that uh, people were saying would happen is Trump, the ultimate ringmaster, uh, ringmaster, uh, will will uh, his strategy will be to turn the Senate trial into you know into uh, into a circus. Yeah. And uh, one of your sources speculated that he might even try to uh, have his team call Joe Biden as a witness. What did Trump tweet just just today? Yeah, that he tweeted that, that Joe Biden, that Sleepy Joe, and Hunter. <laughs> need to come forward and need to testify. Yeah. And this would be obviously in the Senate, probably by all accounts, this would be in January because it looks like the House will not be done before the end of the year. Yeah. I was just going to say, <clears throat> what, what's your best uh, understanding of the timing right now? We got the first public hearings next week. Yeah. How long do they go on? When yeah. does it go to the Judiciary Committee for actually voting articles of impeachment? Well, it's also, you know, you got Thanksgiving. So you have, I think you have two weeks after this one until mm-hmm. Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. So they'll do public hearings for those two weeks. They'll come back maybe do another week, maybe two of public hearings, and then they have a vote in. And But then it has to go to judiciary. Yeah, right, that's right. And judiciary, I think, wants to hold its own yeah. hearings. Yeah, and uh, that's, the, that's the venue where right. the president's lawyers, the only venue before the Senate trial, where the president's lawyers get to uh, respond to evidence, cross-examine witnesses. witnesses, call their own witnesses, you know, according well, to they, the chair. They, they get to do it before judiciary, but not before the Intelligence Committee. That's right. That's right. And um, Nadler, as the chair, has veto power over witnesses oh, that they that, want to that call. That is going to be such a it's circus. It's going to be very contentious. Yes. And, and, and yeah. the, the resolution that they have says that they will basically grant witnesses, witness requests to, to the White House based on the level of cooperation they're getting from them, I think, on broader issues. So that, that indicates maybe not a lot of... I do think that one procedural rule in the Intelligence Committee that um, is important and uh, and I think is probably a a wise thing for Schiff to have done is that instead of having these like five-minute rules where every member of the committee, and there are a lot of them, get to kind of ask questions but also grandstand and make their own speeches, Schiff will have 45 minutes – to question uh, witnesses in the committee or whoever he he could have a an outside counsel come in and do it for him, but that I think tactically was a smart move so that there's a more kind of a coherent, cohesive unfolding of the evidence and storytelling. So yeah, I we'll talked to, to John John Lawrence, who was Pelosi's former chief of right. staff today, and he pointed to that as a key procedural change that they made because if you have five minute questions for, you know, one congressman after another, it's become a pattern. But then, but then does Devin Nunes get 45 yes. minutes? Nunes yes. does too. Devin Nunes yeah. is, well, Which, that will uh, be will that quite, quite well, the spectacle. And by the way, last thing on this, because we got to wrap this up, but uh, the other thing that the Republicans did was in- interesting is that they, they reassigned. Um, well, that hasn't been done yet. Uh, Jim, Jordan. Jordan. Jim Jordan. Yeah, it's yeah. not a done deal yet. It's not a done deal yet. I don't know if but it was Pelosi, just saying that the idea was yeah. for Jim Jordan to right. just move over to the Intelligence Committee because they the Republicans see him as their most aggressive dogfighter. Uh, yeah, dogfighter. Yeah. I mean, who comes off Intel is the question. Probably Will Hurd would be the first one. But, but the he, question is, can he'll, Pelosi, be, he'll be relieved, I, I imagine. <laughs> but can yeah, Pelosi veto well. it? Is I don't I don't know the answer to that. Interesting. Right okay. Yeah. All right. Well, Jenna, John, thanks for joining us. We will have you both back as this saga continues. 
are joined now by Ohio Senator Sherrod Brown, who's written a new book about his desk, and we'll ask him about that and a lot of other things. Senator, welcome to Skullduggery. Good to be with you. Thank Michael. So listen, so much to talk about, and we will get to the book, but let's start out with the election results last Tuesday from your neighboring state, Kentucky, where the Republican governor, Bevin, who uh, President Trump had come down to testify and to, to Shall we where say President embrace, Trump, embrace. Yeah, to embrace and um, campaign for, lost. And uh, what does that tell us, if anything, about the president's political strength right now? Well, it tells you that he's not as strong as he thinks he is. He also, he went to, he went to Lexington, apparently, because he wanted to go to the biggest arena possible. So I, I think he was at the U of K arena. But he also helped spur Democratic turnout because that's a university town. I, I, that's one of the theories. I, I don't think we know any of that for sure. What we do know is the suburbs in northern Kentucky, the part of the, the suburbs of Cincinnati. Um, Cincinnati, as you know, Michael's always mm-hmm. been for, for decades, been one of the most conservative big cities in the north. In some ways, it's not entirely a northern city. Um, the suburbs of Cincinnati and the Ohio side are very conservative. The suburbs of Cincinnati on the Kentucky side, on the other side of the river, were very conservative. And they turned out in large numbers, white, mostly white. Women, middle class, well-educated women voted in pretty large numbers. Their unhappiness with this president, with that governor, but also with this president. And that was the story of the election nationally, obviously. Suburbs, good turnout in in among it's okay turnout among young people good turnout in areas people of color and a exceptionally high vote on our side in the in the suburbs but it is easy to kind of read a little too much into this right because bevin was yeah. not popular no uh, but this is kentucky yeah right but but republicans uh did well down the ballot other than yeah. other than Bevin. well i don't so. think the democrats had um I, that is true and the i think bevin was, only yeah. he barely won his primary which yeah. is pretty surprising for an incumbent so i don't, I don't want to say this yeah. means that mitch right. mcconnell's quaking in his boots although it concerns him because yeah. mcconnell's numbers are about the same as bevin's you know 30 some percent favorable yeah. uh, mcconnell wins races as republicans tend to do now just by so demonizing the other side. I mean, that's how Trump won. So, you know, he wasn't a popular man when he ran. He won't be a popular man again. And his only way of winning is to is to demonize the Democrat in ways we've never seen, perhaps. And that's think, what they do. Yeah. Do you think the results say anything at all about um, in, impeachment and how voters are looking at impeachment? Well, Senator Kane in Virginia tells me they do. He says that um, there were a lot of factors and you never know exactly why people vote in how to how to scratch deep and analyze several layers, but um, Tim would said un, said unequivocally that that impeachment did not hurt the Democrats for sure moving in this way, and I think that only gets better because as more evidence comes out every week, and you know now that Sondland has done triple backflips and <laughs> Taylor will be the first public, I guess the first public witness, yeah, on and they yeah. continue to excoriate people who are patriotic, won medals of honor and purple hearts and went to West Point and they keep going after them. And that's not a good strategy for them. But they change their strategy every day because they don't know what to do to satisfy Trump. By the way, just, uh, your position on impeachment yeah. is, is what at this uh, point? Succinctly, it's I support uh, what Pelosi's done. I, I think Pelosi, I, I, one of the things I said in my book is that Johnson, Lyndon Johnson was considered the best, uh, best legislative leader of the 20th century, most effective. I think Nancy Pelosi's at least as good, maybe better. Um, and uh, she's done this right. Uh, I assume they will pass Article of Impeachment, but I think they should. Um, then uh, I should have no opinion, nor should my co- other 99 colleagues have no opinion on removal. As until, a juror. Yeah, as a juror. But you believe he should be I impeached. think he has done enough to be impeached. I don't know if it—two two factors. I don't know if it's enough to be uh, of a level high crime and misdemeanor for removal— and I also owe it to my constituents in this country to listen to what the president's defense is. Spoken as the senator from a state that uh, President Trump carried by, yeah. what, eight or nine eight, points. Eight points. So yeah. you have what are you hearing from your constituents well, I, on I, this? I'm hearing mixed. I, I have been very outspoken that he should be impeached. So I'm not I'm not trying to walk any middle line here. Right. Um, but I think we all owe it. And I, I hope the senators from 
you know, from the most conservative states in the country, Idaho and Arkansas or whatever, I hope they're as fair-minded thinking, let's look at the evidence if the preponderance of evidence says convict, convict. But well, I, I, people are all over the place, but I was speaking at Beachwood High School, a suburban high school in Cleveland this week, and they were asking me about, about you know, what about public opinion on this? And I said, like, I, I'm not a lawyer, I pointed that out, but I said, if uh, just like a judge and jury, we should go in, we should not listen. This is the only time I'll ever advocate this. We should shouldn't listen to public opinion, shouldn't pay attention, shouldn't let social media or our phone calls or our letters or our conversations on street corners in, in Dayton affect how we, we, should, we shouldn't do that because it should be all about the evidence. What's a Senate trial going to look like? I have no idea. I, the, the, the sort of joke going around is all hundred of us have to sit in our seats and be quiet, which is another <laughs> constitutional crisis in the making. But um, I, I, I think Justice Roberts, my understanding, and we've not really sat down and part of this is what rules does McConnell and Schumer come down and come up with right. the way Lott and Daschle did. So I, I guess to, to Has know that process any, begun? Uh, it's starting. I think they are beginning to talk about mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. It's certainly not far along if it's started. Yeah. But um, a week, two weeks? Um, well, McConnell says he wants to wrap it up quickly because there's not much there. And that doesn't sound like a juror, does it? So um, I think it should take as long as it, it ta should take as long as it should take. And uh, I would assume it doesn't start till January. Uh, obviously, the, the, the Chief Justice of the United States will preside. I was corrected. I was on a show and I said the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. And actually, it's the Chief Justice of the United States uh, and is, is the correct term in the Constitution. Um, uh, the president says he wants Joe Biden to testify. Okay, in his in support of Trump or against Trump? Or well, I, I, yeah, I, I don't know what the on rules. The stand. What do you make of I, that? I, I took if, no. If, I, well, I took no course in rules of evidence or any of this. So I never went to law school, so I I don't know what all these discussions are going to be. Who should testify? Who should not be allowed but to? I, I think how the much point is, is that they want to make it. He'll try to make it into as much of a political circus yeah. as well, he can. It's, it's his presidency, right? Yeah, yeah. As of now, do you see? Any of your Republican colleagues voting to convict? Um, I see perhaps Mitt Romney. I, I don't speak for him. I, right. He's not told me that. But a month ago, if you had asked that, Michael, I would have said no, zero. I think as more things comes out, more things come out, there are more. I mean, I see them sweating. I hear Republican members of the Senate say things like, you know, we know we, we know he's pretty crooked. He lies a lot. He's, you know, he's pretty bad guy. Um, someone will say, we know he's a racist, but they're, um, they're not saying it publicly. But once Cory Gardner and Joni Ernst and Susan Collins and Tom Tillis, and they're in trouble in their states, we'll see how this evolves. Wait, are you, so you just named four people. Are they people who you've spoken to? About <laughs> no, 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 no. I named four people because <laughs> okay. they're, in, they're, okay. they're, they're all going to lose in the next election if they, if they are not if things work the way I think they're going to work. I mean, I, one of the things I, I, and I'm not trying to just bring it to my book, but one of the things I wrote, the reason I wrote a progressive history is to talk about the progressive eras we've had, especially during Wilson's time, even though he was a racist, he, there were many progressive things that came out of that era. Race, not civil rights, not one of them, of course. Roosevelt Johnson. And I think potentially with all that's going on, there's a real potential of a progressive era beginning again in 2020. And if that's the case, if there is that public move, and it's always got to come from the public, it's not just the artificialness of an election. Um, it really has to have that foundation. Then, you know, the, the senators I mentioned are all in trouble because they're all in states that that um, Republicans are, are, are beginning to lose or losing. So let's uh, get to the book. And I want to start out with something you put way back uh, uh, in on page Hoping 314. Hoping you would read that far, Michael. Yeah. <laughs> um, You're known for only reading for like the, the first 20 pages. I look for the nuggets. Uh, in late January 2019, Connie, that's your wife, and I set out on our Dignity of Work listening tour as we visited the four early presidential states. We listened. That was widely seen, seen as you sort of testing the water for a presidential run. Well, it was widely did... seen by cynics like you. That, <laughs> of course he's running. He just does this first stuff. Why didn't you get in? I didn't get in because I didn't have the drive and desire to be president. I Anybody that's known me, is no, nobody that knows me has ever heard me say, I want to be president of the United States. And um, to do this, you've got to want it. I, I, I think one of the reasons I went in Ohio is I, I, I have sort of the I don't mean to make any other comparison, sort of the Hubert Humphrey joy of the, 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 the um, 
the happy warrior to me, and I don't know that I would have had it um, in a presidential race. I have to say that that strikes me as maybe the most honest answer to that question (laughs) that I've ever heard. I was expecting you to say, well, you know, I, I talked it over with my family. We decided we just couldn't no, they, make they the were, they were in right now, my daughters, but, but my, didn't yeah, have the drive yeah, or the yeah. desire. Yeah, you have to you have to really want yeah. it. And most, I mean, you know the you know the old line from probably from George Aiken, but somebody else may have said it before that it was Senate in the Senate. He said, "You look around the Senate, and the only cure for the presidential virus is embalming fluid." <laughs> and you've got to really want it. And I I I'd never yeah. talk. And but so, but look, for two months, we thought very seriously, and it could it could have gone either way. At that point, we just decided. Okay, no. but look, there is a lot of unease in Democratic Party circles right now about the field you've got. There uh, always is. That every yes, election, but go uh, ahead. Fair and uh, you know, uh, Vice President Biden, who a lot of people saw as the sort of centrist uh, leading contender has um, has faded a bit. And uh, Elizabeth Warren, who seemed to be the up and comer, uh, has been tripped up over Medicare for all and the uh, and the costs of paying for it. If Biden doesn't do well in Iowa and New Hampshire, uh, there's going to be a great, you know, search for somebody to come in. Are you open if I'm just that's not, what I can't, I can't imagine that scenario. First of all, I'm I'm not a Joe Biden Joe Biden moderate. I mean, I voted against the Iraq War. I voted against trade agreements. I voted against the bankruptcy bill. I've been an F from the NRA my whole career. I um, I was for marriage equality 20 years ago. So. I'm not the moderate savior of all to come in in that way. Right. But you're not Elizabeth Warren either. Look, I I think um, the reason that there are a lot of people out there who are interested in your potential candidacy is because you are unique in some ways among uh, Democrats, uh, which is that you are someone who has a record of uh, advocating for working class Americans. You've been reelected in your state over and over again by wide margins. Don't, at the don't, same over, time, don't overstate the width of the margins. But, <laughs> All right, but you know, but it wasn't, it wasn't for, a recount. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and at the same time, you're liberal on social issues, and you seem to have figured out a kind of a path forward politically. So I guess my question is, you know, you obviously we have candidates uh, on the very progressive side who are in this race, like Elizabeth Warren and Bernie S- Sanders, but they seem to be, uh, they, they talk a lot about, about fighting, they talk a lot about revolutions. Um, I wonder if you think that they are talking to those Americans, to working Americans in the way that they should or how you would do it. Well, you said my last answer was just the most honest thing you ever said, so let me deflect that one. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 th- I would say this. I would say I would hope all of them would start talking more about the dignity of work. And when I think about workers, and I, I mean literally talking about running a campaign through the eyes of workers, running the, the government through the eyes of workers, and that, that means – that means honoring, respecting work, and it doesn't. It's not the white male firefighters I talk about, although they're included. It's the people that work that prepare the food in, in hospitals. It's it's the construction worker. It's the immigrant that's that's driving a cab. It's mm-hmm. it's it's workers broadly. Punch a clock, swipe a badge, work for tips, raising kids, and we do that. We win, and you you do that. And what I what I'm hopeful is that our candidates will move more and more towards that dignity of work in contrast with Trump's betrayal of workers. Trump betrays workers every single day. We will get enough Trump votes and we will turn out a whole lot of new young people if we talk about work and honoring work. I mean, King, Dr. King said that that no job is menial if it pays an adequate wage. And that should be who that should be what our party is. And that's one reason my dignity of work tour in those first two months, if you had read further in the page, Michael, <laughs> than just the top 11 lines, you would see that, that I mean, that that's really why that message was reverberating and people were expressing interest is because that that, that you, you don't just win Ohio that way. I think you do. But you win the industrial Midwest. But beyond that, because, you know, people in this country work hard and aren't getting for it what they used to clearly and aren't getting ahead with wages. And, and we don't you know that that's partly about unions. It's partly about giving people more of a voice in their schedules and their work schedules and the mis, not being misclassified in their work. All of those sorts you of things. You represent a lot of union workers who have health insurance through their mm-hmm. negotiated plans that would go away under Medicare for all proposals of Senator Warren and Senator Sanders. Um, could you sell that to a, a Medicare for all proposal that eliminates private insurance for your union members in Ohio? Well, I've had conversations with people about 
figuring out a better way here. And I, I think that the debates, it would be hard directly to answer your question. The, the debate needs to be when, when nine Democrats or 12 Democrats are sitting on the stage saying, this person's saying this, this person's saying something else, this person's saying a third thing about health care. What we ought to be talking about is, okay, the Democrats all want to get to universal coverage. We, we all do, every progressive Democrat, and everybody in that stage is essentially a progressive, even the more conservative members, or conservative debaters. But we all are for universal coverage. Contrast that with what Trump wants to do. Trump, Trump, first he failed by a vote to get it through the Senate to wipe away the 900,000 people in Ohio, their insurance and Thanks to John Kasich and me working together as a Republican governor, he he helped us with that. 900,000 people in my state could lose their insurance. Two million have pre-existing conditions and would lose potentially if Trump wins in the court. First, he tried in the Senate, then he's trying in the court. And that's part of the betrayal. And we should be talking about here's what Republic, here's what Democrats want to get to universal coverage. We have different ideas, different paths, different speeds. But look what Republicans are trying to do. Look at Trump betraying. Um, our workers, our people, our, our patients, our hospitals, ultimately, too. And that's a way to talk about that. Mm-hmm. And that's what our, I've urged our candidates to do that more. And obviously, the impact I'm having is, <laughs> is but it's hard on these debate stage because, yeah. you know, I, I know I, I, my wife's a journalist. I know what reporters want to do. And I appreciate that. Yeah. The, the news is, is more the, the, the rancor and the arguments back and forth, sure. not the positioning they do. But right. they need to start talking about bring Trump into this. Not, not Trump this, the, the, despicable human being or Trump the crook or Trump, but just Trump what he's doing to people in this country Mm -hmm. on health care. All right. The book is Desk 88, Eight Progressive Senators Who Changed America. Tell us the this is about Desk 88 is your desk in the Senate. Tell us about the first week in the Senate for first month in the Senate. I don't remember exactly when uh, we all the 10 freshmen were choosing where we were going to sit on the floor. We get the last 10 chairs to 10 seats, essentially. And, uh, you know, I I realized I wasn't sitting behind going to be sitting behind a post at old municipal stadium and on the lake for the Cleveland Lakefront (laughs) Stadium. So we um, I just started pulling out drawers because I'd heard that senators wrote their name in the bottom of the drawers. And I the fourth drawer I pulled out. It said McGovern, South Dakota, Gore, Tennessee, Hugo Black. Then it just said Kennedy. And I said, Ted, come here a second, would you? And he was four or five seats away, and he walks over. I said, which, which brother is this? He said, well, it's got to be Bobby's because I have Jack's desk. Hmm. So I started thinking about this, and, and the same reason I wear this canary pin, it's, a, it's been given to me 20 years ago, a Workers' Memorial Day rally. It's a depiction of a canary in a birdcage. And the mine workers took the canary down in the mines because they had no government that cared enough or a union strong enough to protect them. They were on their own. And I, I'm writing this book. I wrote this book for the same reason I wear this pen. And you know, most members of Congress write a pen that's got, you know, about their their senator house, the, the, what they give us. Um, but I, I wrote it to show that, that the power of government can change people's lives for the better. And starting with Hugo Black, who was a big part of the 40-hour work week and minimum wage. And and fascinating character, reform. given yeah. where he started. Yeah, yeah where he's yeah. exactly right. And many of these, let's just say many of these characters, Ended better than they started, but that's what well. We I'd say none should, more so be. than Hugo well, no, Black. None more than Hugo Black. Yeah. Well, let's talk about age, him, and then I've okay. got another one I want to talk all about. Right, all sure. right, but Hugo Black at age thirty-seven joins the Ku Klux Klan in Alabama, marches in Klan rallies, and in like white hoods as a Klansman. You know, I sort of vaguely knew that he had been a member of the Ku Klux Klan. I didn't realize that late in life to that extent. It's pretty astonishing yeah. when you look at how he evolved. Yeah. He started, I mean, he was nothing if not an opportunist. He, start, he said he didn't do any, he said he didn't do anything really bad as a Klansman, whatever that means. <laughs> but he, he, he said I had to choose between what he called the big mules, and that was the steel companies, the coal companies, the electric companies, and, and the mining companies in Alabama. Had to choose between the big mules and the, the Klan, because the, the Klan, in those days, they say, represented half of voters in Alabama. You know, there were no black voters, of course, in those days, or maybe 10 or 20. So he um, he said, I would have joined any group that got me votes. That's what he said. 30 years later, 20, 20, 20 to 30 years later, he's on the Supreme Court. He, first of all, becomes Roosevelt's favorite Southern senator because he was so good on labor stuff, white labor stuff, I would add. Still cast some bad votes on race. Um, went to the court in 1955 or 6 after Brown v. Board. 
Um, he was burned in effigy in Tuscaloosa, Tuscaloosa at, the, at the law school he went to. He had gone full circle. I think you said one of the first things he did in the Senate was to filibuster the anti-lynching bill. Yeah, yeah. so he was and, wrong on those issues. Yeah. And then he ends up being a driving force in Brown versus yeah, Board of Education. Right, right. I, I, I think he... I, I, I'm sorry, I don't know more about this. I think he had a major part to play in keeping and making it unanimous, which, if you remember, it was so important to be unanimous because they knew the resistance right. in the South. So, and, and you know, and Al Gore Sr. didn't always cast the best votes. He stood up against the, the manifest, the Southern Manifesto, courageously, fairly early in his career. He was only beaten by Nixon for standing against two pretty racist Supreme Court justices in 19, in, two, in 2000, in 1970. Carswell and Hainsworth. Carswell yeah, right. and Hainsworth. Mm -hmm. well, well, let's talk about Bobby Kennedy, because I think yeah. you said Kennedy was the first name you saw on Desk 88. Talk about a transformation, right? This is a guy who early in his in his career was a pretty ruthless uh, operator. And for a guy named Joe McCarthy. For Joe McCarthy. Joe McCarthy. He, he spied on Martin Luther King. He, uh, you know, uh, dirty tricks against uh, his political rivals, I mean, all sorts of things. And he goes through this uh, in incredible transformation. What are the, to become a you know, great civil rights leader and one of the most empathetic politicians, you say, of our, yeah. of our time. So what were the factors that led to that transformation? Well, and so many people have read so much about Kennedy. I, I'm probably out of my league to, to try to psychoanalyze too deeply. But I think two things that I, that I see from reading, I, I read about 160 books to, to, to write this book and talk to 100 people. And um, a number of them on Kennedy, I mean, not maybe five or six, but Kennedy, um, his brother's death certainly changed him dramatically. The other thing is, if it wasn't, it wasn't this one incident, but it was, it was doing what Lincoln, Lincoln used to talk about. His staff would say, stay in the White House, win the war, free the slaves, preserve the Union. He said, no, I got to get my public opinion baths. And Kennedy really did a lot of that. And the story that I, I liked the most, my wife, Anakani, and I were having dinner with Marianne Wright and Peter Edelman. Um, Marion Wright Edelman and Peter Edelman in I think 2009 and talking about Kennedy because I talked to her about a little bit about this book and this desk and she didn't like the Kennedys at all. She was um, Yale Law School graduate. I think she grew up in South Carolina. She was sent to Mississippi to set up Head Start because the segregationist governor and Eastland and Stennis, the two senators, yeah. were, were, were going to keep it out. So it ultimately became the biggest employer in Mississippi, which tells you a lot about segregation and a lot about the poverty in the state. But she, um, Kennedy wanted to come and see the Delta, and, and she was the person they called. And she didn't like the Kennedys because— the Eisenhower judges were pro, were pretty good in the civil rights movement, remember. The Kennedy judges all had to be run by Eastland, so they were terrible judges, and she thought Kennedy had just sold out mm -hmm. to Eastland, so to Jack Kennedy. So when Bobby arrived with a staff person named Peter Edelman, she didn't have any use for him either at the beginning, <laughs> and she married him later, as you all know, but she saw an empathy in Kennedy. He he didn't let we didn't let TV cameras into the shack they went into. She told the story. I, I recounted some of it, but how he held this baby that was just so dirty and sick looking and boils and all. And she said, "I didn't want to hold this baby," and he held and just had a had a compassion and empathy uncommon in almost anybody she'd ever seen, let alone a senator. So well, I that, don't know if that change happened. It yeah. certainly wasn't entirely that moment, but there was an evolution when he saw things. But what is fascinating is just the capacity for that kind of change in any politician. Yeah. It's yeah. pretty rare. Right. right. And it's all in Desk 88, Eight Progressive Senators Who Changed America, written by the non-presidential candidate, Sherrod Brown. Thanks for joining Thanks. us. Thanks. <laughs> it was fun. Thanks to U.S. Senator Sherrod Brown and our Yahoo News colleagues, Jenna McLaughlin and John Ward, for joining us on this episode of Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. The latest episode is also on SiriusXM on the weekend. Check it out on POTUS Channel 124 on Saturdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time with replays on Sundays at 1 a.m. and 3 p.m. Be sure to follow us on social media at Skullduggery Pod. Talk to you soon.